0: This is Alex, and this is James, and you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the American Toffee Podcast. I hope that everyone has had a wonderful weekend, or as wonderful as a weekend can be without Everton playing. As always, I'm here joined by Alex. What's up? And our very special guest today, we're very pleased to welcome on David Alexander.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Got him! Oh, I can't believe you stung me with that one there. Uh, all, I'm sorry. After all party had conversation. the conversation, <laughs> um, David Hughes. Yeah. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's good to be on. Good to be on. So, so- uh,
1: for, to kick things off, just just give us a, a little bit of a rundown about what you do. Obviously, you you cover stats you cover specifics you write for the echo you kind of cover i guess you're on a, several different platforms so how did you decide you wanted to be a football writer a football journalist whatever you mm. whatever you be called um and kind of what was your path to where you are now
2: well i mean for me personally it was quite a, a long-winded process to get from from a to b um i was a i was originally working within law um i just i hated it I didn't enjoy it, um, so the football writing really started as a hobby, um, and I was doing it for a while, just trying to put it on any platform that would that would take any of my work. To be honest, and funny enough, I've had a, I've had a read of some of the stuff that I did back then, and I'm, I'm surprised anybody took it. But but it um, it got published in a in a few places, and then from there it got a little bit better, a little bit sharper work wise, and then I started doing a bit of freelancing work, um, so it would become a, a paid hobby. Um, but after a while, I thought, I'm, I'm bending over backwards to do this and even weekends because I'm I'm working in a job that I don't enjoy. Um, so I really just started to knuckle down then and try and uh, adapt my writing more to the kind of stuff that people see now. And that's more stat-based and a lot more analysis. Um, and then it, it just really snowballed from there until I eventually landed the role I've got now with with Reach, who were uh, some may know, uh, formerly Trinity Mirror, who are one of the biggest publishers, really, in, in England. Um, and they, they've they started a big football project last year um, where they wanted to bring on specialist writers. One of those specialist roles was a scouting writer, which is my job. There's me and another lad uh, called Josh Williams, who's he's at a distance covered. Um, he's he's really good. I'm not going to say he's better than me because we, we get quite competitive, but he's... Uh, he is his stuff really good the only problem is he is a Liverpool fan so you know there's too many of them in the world already but except for that he's a a good lad and both of us have really been just tackling a lot more in-depth articles looking at you know as as you touched on more data and work analysis yeah and that's that's basically where, where I'm at at the moment
1: I do find it really interesting when you talk about football, soccer media in general, it tends to be very qualitative in its analysis where you watch the match. And I think we do a lot of this in, in a lot of other talk shows and especially the pundits on on Sky and what have you. It's very just you, you watch it and you take your own personal view of it and you know say this player had a bad game because maybe they had a few bad moments here or there. And it's and I think it's a really valuable in trend in media coverage that's looking more analytical. And I think in a way it kind of follows what's what's been what it's been preceded by in American sports, which over the last decade has mm. become very heavily data driven. So can you talk a little bit about the mindset that where you where you decided that you wanted to to dig into the data more to give, I guess, a more realistic or I guess neutral perspective on the game that a lot of fans I think are kind of clamoring for these. days?
2: Yeah, so I think it's it, it's definitely be almost blowing up in, in in that side of things within within football. People take it a lot more seriously now, and I'm not just even talking about a change within the last ten years. This is the last two, three, maybe four years that there's been a big change. And yeah, it, I'm glad that you mentioned it about the the kind of influence American sports has had on on the English on the English game. Um, because I think a lot of it does come from that. I can't think of a better example than the cliche Moneyball. Um, was it Oakland Raiders? Was it or uh, oh, Oakland A's? The baseball A's, A's, A's. Oh yeah, of course. Cool. I'm, I'm getting mixed up with that. Yeah, it's okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know that kind of thing did come over there. I think one of the biggest influences we've seen in England, sadly, is has been the success Liverpool have had. Mm. Um. I think they've they've probably been the best example of of using data to to recruit players. And it, it, at first, it just seemed like they were getting a lot of luck, you know, with Mo Salah, uh, Andy Robinson, these kind of players who didn't have a unbelievable CV before they come. Even Sadio Mane put him in there as well. These players that looked okay or looked good, but didn't, didn't certainly look elite players. And you know, it, you have to admit now, it's more than luck that they've gone on to be the, the players that they are.
1: Yeah, and I think um, I think it's it's true that Liverpool, are, and due to the American ownership, I think they really, from what I've read about it, seems like that was the focal point coming in was they wanted to dr- drive success through data and analytics, but also I think to some extent, kind of use a smaller budget, only to find out that well, the, I mean, it's, it's still money still plays a huge role. You can't really get anywhere. Even if you have the best data set in the world and the best scouting, without the money aspect behind it, and I think that that's that's something a trend that I mean, if you look at the correlation between money spent and and late, league position, it's basically a one to one correlation at yeah. um, so,
2: so yeah, I I mean I, I totally do agree. Um, but the only thing is, I think then you've got a. Like the, what I will say, Liverpool spends a lot of a lot of money, but they've made a lot through uh, player sales, and this is kind of the direction I want Everton to go. Uh, in this, I'd like to see Everton, and I, I think we've we're seeing a lot more of that over the last two seasons with brands more settled into the role. But I want to see Everton buying a lot more players with high high ceilings in terms of terms of potential, so that we can accept that we may lose them further down the line, but. If you can double or maybe even triple the money you've paid, that money can then be reinvested into the side. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at that Liverpool example again, they sold Coutinho for what was it, about one forty, and they brought Van Dijk in, um, the goalkeeper, Alison Becker, and who turned out to be probably two of their best players without really spending a spending a penny of a, that wasn't made through player sales. And I think that's that's something that Everton really needs to. Hopefully, change their model to do something similar. I think they are. You know, we look at richarlson the way the, the way he's going at the moment. He's a fantastic player. I think he 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 could go on to be in the in the top one percent in football. Um, so you you could make a lot of money further down the line from player sales with him. Not that I want to lose anytime soon, but he's just a really good example.
1: And, and the turnover is kind of unavoidable, in, especially even if you're in a club like Liverpool's position where you are com- competing in Europe every single year, basically, it's still inevitable that that players will want to leave. And so it's important to be able to, to turn over players for a profit and then also find those adequate placements. And I think Everton find themselves in perhaps arguably a less desirable position where there's probably more clubs higher on the the totem pole as far as global player ambition that yeah. if a lot of clubs come calling, oh, there's there's more clubs that players will view as a step up from ever mm. for now. And I think that will change over the coming years. And you look at a player like Moise Keane or Charlison, like you said, players who are competing, you know, starting for Brazil and, and looking to compete for their national sides. I think Brands has done a tremendous job of changing the culture in a short period of time, but we still have are faced with that realistic prospect that if, if a good club comes calling, I mean, Ghana with PSG this summer is a good example, although he was... Probably, probably the right time to sell him in my view.
2: Yeah, spot on. Um,
1: but it's it's still important, you know. When we turned a huge profit with him, despite his age, so yeah. I do think that we're headed in the right direction. And then you look at our net spend this summer with all the outgoings that we've had, and, and it certainly puts us in a better position than we were prior to Brands' arrival.
2: Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I think uh, I think I could only really echo what you said there. It's they are they are certainly on the right path, and you know, the thing is, when you are in evidence position. Um, in the same way that Everton can go to club, clubs below them and take their best players, clubs above us will always be able to do that. But if if you can make a lot of money from those from those sales like you said Garner gave I'm sure they paid seven seven eight mil for him and they ended up getting 30 went fed down the line. If, if you can keep that as a as a model then you're, you're not going to go far wrong and hopefully as the seasons progress you, you you'd almost um, elevate your position on that food chain so to speak. Um, so yeah, I think we've got a good a good, a good, good guy in Marcel Brands who's taken us in the right direction. I don't know how we got onto that from data. I think I took us down that road, <laughs> yeah. didn't I? Apologize. But no, it's yeah, okay. they are all weaved and linked together, sure. um, sort of.
0: And if you love Everton this much, then it's easy to just ramble on and on yeah. and on. It doesn't matter. There are plenty of rabbit holes to go down. So mm. the overarching theme for this episode, right? We're going to be talking about our top six aspirations for this season. Um, and we're going to narrow it down by starting about contrast between our home and our away form uh, since, well, I guess specifically last season, because this season we've only had a handful of matches thus far. Um, a lot of this data is is being uh, grabbed from David's most recent article on echo Everton's away problem and a possible solution to Marco Silva's woes. Mm. Looking at Everton's home and away form from last season as a whole, we averaged scoring 1.7 goals per 90 minutes at home. However, we only averaged 1.1 goals per 90 away. Now, it's no secret that any fan can realize that, that our home form has been pretty good. However, our away form has been almost mm. horrible. Um, David, what do, you, what do you think the main... Points. The main reasons are for for such poor away form.
2: Well, I mean, I I obviously touched on it in the uh, in the piece about the kind of real, you know, the underlying numbers. But one thing I do want to point out is is this has been a a problem at Everton for a long time. Really, I I couldn't tell you the last season where I thought Everton played really well away from home over the course of a campaign i don't mean maybe a handful of matches i mean over the course of a campaign kind of brought in a decent amount of points and and just performed well away from home so this has been going on for a while um i mean we look at specifically last season there was there was fewer shots attempted fewer crosses few, fewer shots from outside the box um there was also less of a so, uh, again, it's it's difficult if people haven't read the piece to kind of keep jumping in and out. But basically, I, I pointed out how Everton were the second best team in terms of pressing the ball last season, which surprises a lot of people because when you think of the most aggressive presses in the league, you think of the likes of, obviously, Liverpool, Manchester City. You know, basically, the top six, but there was on, only City who proved more aggressive than Everton in pressing the ball last season. But... That the press seems to go very lax away from home. And I think it all boils down to mindset. When you think of the top six, who's obviously the, the the competition for Everton. They're, they're who Everton want to be. They go into every game with the view of trying to win, win it, trying to dominate the ball, dominate the number of shots on goal, win the ball back as soon as possible. Everton haven't got that mindset yet. And I think that is ultimately what's slowing them down when they're, when they're away from home.
1: And I do think it's interesting when you when you kind of break it down from an analytical perspective, right? The first thing you would it's like okay, well, you know, the pitch is still the pitch, the players are still the players. So what changes between a home game and, a, and an away game? And it and it's the crowd and the atmosphere. I think really plays a bigger oh, role than a lot of people, you know, might guess. But you know, you you remove all the external factors, and it's like it in it in it extends not just football, but but every sport basically. You see these. That teams generally perform much better at home than away, and so you know there was a lot of talk last season about the good atmosphere at Goodison, and luckily th- those issues seem to have been rectified thanks to the work of a lot of the different fan groups. Um, tremendous work that they've done there, but I do think that that the team itself has shown that they do have a hard time when when the opposition fans when they're away really get into the match. And, and we do look scared at times. And at
2: yeah, its core, well, that's the yeah. whole
1: point of having home fans, right? To intimidate the opposition. But I, I just think it's really interesting. And, and also the fact that that you brought up about the press in your article, the fact that we were so prolific and, and aggressive with our press, even though Marco Silva in a lot of ways was still in the, in its in, his reign was in its infancy and he was still working to mm. kind of instill his philosophy amongst the team. Um, but it does get a lot more difficult when you've got opposition fans that that really kind of their whole goal is yeah. to put you out put you out of your, your the right mindset and, and i think in a lot of ways it's just about mental strength and being able to overcome the conditions in which you're playing
2: yeah see the thing is i, I think we can all agree it's unlikely to be an exclusive issue for Everton. Ever, i'm sure True. If, we, if we if we did the, the same sort of data work on every side in the premier league i i haven't done it but i you'd be you'd more than guess that it, it'd throw up similar results but At the same time, we're only focusing on Everton at the moment, and I think two things for me really uh, show the difference in mindset. Number one is, as I said, that press. If you're actively looking to win the ball back as soon as possible, or you're looking to win the ball in advanced areas, that to me says that you want to be the dominant side. You you want the ball, you want to control the game. Now, if you're doing that at home but not away, that to me says you're not as comfortable doing it away from home, which is why you're reluctant to try and win the ball back as soon as possible. And there was another thing that I really should have highlighted a little bit more just to kind of drill down why I think it's so pivotal. The shot distance as well. Um, at home last season, the shot distance per 90 averaged out to around just over 18 metres per game. Although that was away from home, it was smaller at 16.9. The the importance of that to me says that Everton a lot more, or the players anyway, or are a lot more confident at hitting the ball from distances further away, which obviously the further away you are from the goal, the less chance there there is that it's going to actually go into the net. But there's still that confidence that they're willing to take the shots and take those chances, whereas it seems away from home, they don't have that same confidence in their ability and there's more of a reluctancy to, to take on these shots from further distances out and more awkward angles. And again, that all boils down to me to that that confidence factor, um, and I think that's the only thing holding them back at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think in practice, that's a really good point because I would have never, uh, I would have never thought to look at a statistic such as uh, shot distance. But I guess that's why you're the professional, David. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in practice, a good example of that, right? And, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with home and away, but look at our left-hand side of attack now, right? So we had Bernard last season, and and one of the one of my biggest gripes for Bernard was he never looked to score, mm. right? Bernard is the type of player that he's going to move it, and he's going to create a goal-scoring chance. But if he had the option between taking a shot himself and laying it off to Calvert-Lewin or, or, or Gilfie Sigurdsson, mm-hmm. he's going to lay it off. Yeah. But but look at who came in. We signed a young guy from Arsenal named Alex Iwobi. Yeah. He comes in on the left, and, and actually his... His goal scoring record at Arsenal over the last couple of years is not very good at all in the Premier League. Mm. But Marco Silva said immediately when he came in, we want more goals from Alex Iwobi. Yes. And over the last two matches we saw him play, one of the first things he looked at doing was going for goal. Even if it's at the corner, you know, the corner of the 18 yard box on the left hand side. Mm. I remember a shot specifically from there. Yeah. And so so it, it seems as though Marco Silva is trying to get that point across that, hey, our winger specifically um, well, ideally he's telling Dominic Calvert Lewin as well, to <laughs> take more shots, yeah. right? Take more shots, be more aggressive because because at the end of the day, I mean, we all know Gilfie Sigurdsson only scores bangers, right? <laughs> and the reason why is because he takes the chance, right? Yeah. He takes the chance. He he at Leicester City, Leicester City, uh, in which he turned Madison, he showed showed the young number 10 how it's done and then <laughs> pinged it from I don't even know, 25, 30 yards out. I mean, that's a perfect example. And 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 hopefully, there's more to come um, on all sides of the attack this season.
2: Yeah, see, I like to call it the Vincent Company effect, in the sense that
1: mm. you, you
2: know, at the end of that, if we were talking XG, that 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 chance must have been zero point zero one. It was, it was, yes, it was almost the impossible angle. But ultimately, that goal ended up winning the league title for for Manchester City, and. I understand that you don't want to be taking pot shots from all over the pitch because ultimately they're low vol- uh, low quality chances, which means they're very unlikely to lead to goals. If you're doing them over and over, it's, it, it's unlikely that you're going to score many goals, put it that way, but... At the same time, you don't want to go too far down the other end of the metric in the, in the sense where I think Everton are teetering on a little bit in that they're too cautious. You need to try and strike up a balance and I think you spoke about Awobi there. That was a really good point in that Yeah, when you, when you compare Awobi and Bernard, they're actually really good players to compare on, on this subject because Bernard can be very reluctant to shoot and Awobi doesn't seem to be like that at the moment. And Even Bernard's only goal of this season, it was a a shot where it takes a little bit of a nick on the way in and it, it wasn't the best hit shot but that ultimately led to a goal that won the game um, so yep. it's yeah it's it, it's something that I, I think we've got to see a little bit more in terms of more shots and don't be scared to take them from distance Aston Villa as well So for me Aston Villa was a real frustrating game to watch because Everton was, was seen so set on trying to play get the ball out to the flanks that there was plenty of shooting opportunities in the middle of the pitch, just outside the penalty area. But we had no players who had the confidence to actually take the shot on. So we were working the ball out to these wide areas, crossing the ball into the likes of Tyrone Mings, who it's 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 his bread and butter, just heading them out. You know, he, 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 they will. Those central defenders are happy to deal with those balls all day, every day. Um, and you needed a little bit more imagination in the in the play, or as we say, more shots from distance and we uh, we didn't get it and ultimately we we did manage to find the goal.
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point that you touched on, David, especially against like lower table sides. What we see is that I think we do get hesitant and maybe a little apprehensive about just having a shot. And when you have a team that's their main objective is to just not concede when they're going to put 10 men behind the ball consistently, you're never going to find that. You're going to find maybe one or two clear-cut chances in the box. Yeah. And so I think in order to maybe draw the opposition out or make them respect you and, and let them know that you're not afraid to take those shots if you have the opportunity to because then it makes them think you know they have to close down in certain areas that they may not want to it maybe opens up a passing lane you know if, if Gilfie puts one just over the crossbar then five minutes later he's in the same position they're gonna think yeah. instead of maybe backing off they're gonna want to come to yeah you and then he can it changes your the options that you have because the the defense it doesn't know what to expect. I think in many regards against those lower table sides we are very predictable in what we do
2: in attack. Yeah, I, I mean you you literally uh, I couldn't add anything more. So that you spot on. If you if 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 a player takes a shot from outside the box, even if it does go wide or high. As you said, it it gives the defenders something to think about. Now they start thinking well, we'll have to close that down, which then in turn breaks that defensive shape. And that's when when you're facing a low block, especially in and around the penalty area, that's what you need to be doing. You need you basically need short in- intricate passing. You need to keep you, you need to try and uh, disorganise the defence by pulling, uh players out of spaces. You know, moving the ball. The last thing you want to be doing when you're facing a low block is putting the ball out wide and just crossing it in where there's there's ten outfield players just waiting to head the ball away. It's it's too easy. Um and yet yeah, if, if you're mixing it up with shots, shorter passes, and not just constantly putting it out on the flanks, then you give them more to think about and those spaces start appearing where you can carve open more more imposing chances, shall we say?
0: Yeah, and you know, I think I think one of the one of the one of the instances in which I'm really excited to see Moy's keen play is when we're facing teams with, with the low block, when, when he gets more acclimated to the league and and how quick the league moves and, and how fast matches are played. Mm. One thing that we saw the other day against Wolves was, was his ability to turn when he receives the ball. He, he tried a couple of, a couple of turns, a couple of mm-hmm. spins yeah. and, and it didn't come off because his touch was a little, was a little big. However, imagine that sort of ability um, and and technical ability that we don't necessarily see in Calvert Lewin from 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 Keane in, in upcoming matches um against some of the lower sides that are looking to just sit in deep and, and not give us a whole lot of a whole lot of space. i I'm, I'm really excited for him, specifically with his just ability and his hunger to get a shot off. And I think it's really going to benefit us and win us a good amount of points this season, um assuming he can he can stay healthy and stay fit and, yeah. and dominant Calvert Lewin doesn't come firing in <laughs> out of nowhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean I I mean I like Calvert Lewin, but I can't imagine that happening. What I like about um Ken Keane, which whichever anyone favours is um, it's his strength already. Nineteen years old, but it seems like players bounce off him. And you talk about the turning ability that he has. You know, a lot of that comes to in his strength to hold these players off. Um, I think he's got great footwork. Interestingly, it's something to watch out for because just before Everton signed him, I, I, although I, I knew about him, I think we all knew about him. I wanted to actually scout him for the piece I was doing, so I looked at a lot of his footage for Juventus in Italy and. He is very, very Um, right-footed. If you you get to see him next time he's playing, almost all of his touches are on the right, but he possesses such an ability with his right foot that it, it doesn't cause him any harm, doesn't give the defenders any sort of advantage. He's that good with it. Um, and there's a lot of players like that who get away with it. Harry Wilson is another one. He's very very left foot because he's so good with that foot. It, it doesn't cause him any issues. Um, and that's why I like it. I, I just think he's got a lot more factors to his game than Calvert-Lewin has. For me, all he's missed so far is a goal. I think if he had if he had that, he would have ticked, it, ticked every box for us so far. Um, we saw bits of his, his, his pace on the ball, his skill, the, the power behind the shot. I, I, he was really unlucky with that one that I rattled against the post against uh, was Lincoln. Lincoln. Yeah, uh, yeah, he was really unlucky with that. So I think he's going to be really exciting to watch this year.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it, it may be a bit of a lazy comparison, but it does remind me a little bit of, of Romelu Lukaku in the sense that, you know, his... his <laughs> it's, it is, I mean, that's the obvious no, no
2: it, it makes me laugh because... I I have heard three people say that in the last week. But the the caveat every time was, I know this is a lazy comparison, (laughs) but uh, everybody said something to do with dreadlocks, do you think? But um, yeah, yeah, I I mean, I totally agree. I was going to say, but I I did my best not to. And luckily you did instead. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I fell right into (laughs) that one. You set that trap for me. But but, but, but it's obvious like his... His ability to defenders have to respect his pace because if they turn, he'll he'll be or if they let come too close, he'll turn and be by them. But also the strength that he possesses—it's it, two kind of contrasting features that work really well and and make him a kind of a nightmare, especially at only nineteen, like the amount that he still has to develop. Um, I, I will be watching to see how many touches he takes with his left versus his right. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: we <laughs> have my little tally up, and I'll be either one. Let we'll me know. Yeah.
0: All right, so. Let's talk about our top six aspirations for this season. I don't think it's it's any secret that Manchester United um, are are not looking very favorable, um, based on the fact that they sold Lukaku. Not that he was a huge asset last season. I mean, he scored goals, but not enough. Um, they got rid of Sanchez, who again did not really um, contribute last season. However, this is this is somewhat off subject. Watford just fired uh, their manager. Oh, we're getting into this. and and. And well, well, to put it in perspective, he had five wins in his last sixteen matches. However, Ole for Man U has had three wins in his last sixteen. So Manchester United are first of all, he's done worse. Uh, second, the, the the teams that they're putting out um, on match days are extremely young, and 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 a lot of them are, are decently academy based. Then we have Chelsea with the transfer ban. Um, they're not looking, they're looking better than Manchester United, but, but they're not looking extremely strong. Unfortunately, our boy Kurt Zuma is, is not even close to performing the way he was for us last season. So Everton, you could say, and, and as, as fat Sam said last week, (laughs) if, if there's a season for us to break into the top six, it's this season. Yeah. Okay. Now, if we're looking at last season, let's compare a couple of these teams that, that we would say we might be competing for that fifth or sixth spot. So so in terms of away matches, because we're, we're wrapping it back towards uh, the, the home and away form, because we know our home form is solid. Man U were fourth in the league for away form, nine wins, seven losses. Chelsea were fifth, nine and seven. Um, Leicester were seventh with seven wins and eight losses. Everton were 12th out of 20, five wins and nine losses away from home. Okay, so mind you, everyone played 19 matches, um, everyone played pretty much the same clubs away and home. So when we're talking about last season, which it could be argued that we, we should have done better um, in, in our home and away form, do you think that we're going to have the same issue this year with our away form? And, and how does that affect maybe our top six aspirations in in relation to these other clubs that have um, difficulties in their own right?
2: Mm, well, simply from, from that
0: was a mouthful. Yeah, I, I no. gave you like three different <laughs> questions. So I'll, I'll try I'll, just uh, just
2: start where you like. Yeah, I'll try and um, I'll try and cut through this as I go. But uh, initially, from Everton's point of view, I think yeah, if Everton it's this simple. If Everton put in a similar performance away from home this season compared to the last, then they're, they're not going to get anywhere near top six. Um, I actually think Bournemouth away next weekend is a huge game if Everton didn't win so i'm like even even if they got a draw if they didn't win that game i would be very pessimistic about their chances of securing a place in top 6 this season because that is a, a game that should should be won on paper but a game that they, they probably wouldn't win and in fact everton's record isn't great there um they threw it away last year when they, they i think they went 3-1 up and finished 3-all um and might have been the season before where they can see the late again. Um we just had some real horror shows down there, so it's a big game on Saturday. Yeah, in terms of the other clubs, I think Leicester are a team to watch this season. I like Leicester. I think they've got good players, a very good manager. Um they're they're gonna be right up there with Everton. Chelsea is a is a very strange one. I don't know how that's gonna play out. One of the centres that we that we look after is is Derby. Um so I, I Wrote a fair bit about Derby last season and in the summer, and Derby really overperformed, uh, especially uh, in expected goals. They they conceded. I think it was around. I think they scored maybe twenty goals more than they should have. Um, should have conceded. Yeah. Wow. And and they also conceded around ten goals less than what they should have as well. Um, this is off the top of me. I have not got the figures to hand, but if you think about it, they only just scraped into the top six on the final day of the season. Um, so I know they nearly come up, but that was thanks to the mayhem that is the playoffs. So Derby were not a good team under Lampard last season, so for him to even got that Chelsea job was crazy. And we've kind of seen a roller coaster start to it as well. That they was they were, they were uh, well beaten against United, and then they picked up the first win a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, I don't know what they're going to be like. And United, the United, are in trouble. They're another team that I write a lot about. In fact, probably. Between them, Liverpool and Everton are the teams that I look at the most. And yeah, even on that great run of form with Solskjaer had early on, a lot of people in the analytical community, as they like to call it, I don't like to consider myself in that, by the way. <laughs> um, but everyone was pointing to the expected goals and saying these, these have been very lucky so far and this is going to eventually catch up with them like it always does. And I think we're seeing that now. Um, I saw somewhere that they were ranked second on unexpected goals so far this season. But they'd have three penalties in there, which is massively skewed the same. Trust me, they're, they're no better than they were last season. As you said, they have not Lukaku. Even even though he wasn't a great player for them, he, he did score goals, even if it was in the matches against the smaller sides. They've got no players to break break down these smaller teams. and. I think of of the six, they're the ones to go. Uh, Liverpool City will be out on their own. I think Tottenham will be up there as well. Arsenal could potentially be in and around Spurs. But yeah, United and Chelsea are the ones that we're going for. And I think we've got a chance.
1: I really think we have a chance too. And you touched on a lot there between you and Alex. covered a lot. Sorry. (laughs) But it's true. and, and, And it's a narrative that's been unfolding for quite a while. I think Man U are in, as a club, a very perilous position right now because. I know there's a lot of distrust and even vitriol directed towards their ownership, but they're also kind of tough because in a tough spot, because they backed Skolshar and they said that they were going to stick with him. And after what happened with the debacle with Mourinho, kind of that fiasco last season, they, the, you know, we know that chopping and changing every few months is not the recipe for success, but then when do you, it's, it's a fine balance between knowing when a manager has done all he can do and it's going to continue to spiral out of control or if he just needs more time. Mm-hmm. And and we know that as Everton fans because we faced it last winter mm-hmm. when the fixtures weren't going for Marco Silva. There, there was a very, I think, never really got to uh, a furor exactly, but there were certainly plenty of rumblings amongst the fan base saying that it was time for him to go and that he was never going to turn things around. And and obviously we stood strong and we maintained our position and, and he was able to get some better results towards the end of the season. But I do think it's going to be very difficult for Manchester United if they continue on this downward spiral of form to continue to back Skolskjaer. Lampard is a bit of a different story because he is like the best I've, I've had, you know, I've had Chelsea, heard Chelsea fans say he's like the best player in their entire history, the most important player to their club ever. Mm. And so I think he definitely, on top of that, they have the transfer ban to, to factor in. So I do think he gets a bit of a longer leash. And at some point, you know, fans have to recognize the, the reality of the situation they're in. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot of development for Chelsea. They have a lot of promising youth players. Um, But I I do think that we can overtake both of them because we are a season ahead as far as a manager establishing their philosophy. And based on purely on the results against the top six last season towards the second half at home, we know that we can compete with anyone on our day. And so it's just about showing up when we need to show up. And and like we mentioned earlier, like the away form is going to be huge, beating the teams that we need to be away from home. Um, because we know last season, Alex and I fell victim to this many times. <laughs> where you look at a game match on paper and you're asked to make a score prediction, it's like, well, we should obviously be beating Watford away, or we should obviously be beating Palace away, mm. and then it just kind of doesn't materialize for one reason or another, and it becomes very frustrating. But um, that's kind of really just my thoughts on the situation.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with with all that. I think, I think you're right. Um, I, he, just for me, I don't think you, I don't think United will stick with Solskjaer. and if I, I agree with what you said about the uh, Chelsea may give Lampard more time, but under those circumstances, but equally Chelsea do not approach managerial decisions with any sort of rational sense. So you could quite <laughs> easily see them sacking him by Christmas if they didn't. Win for six or seven games, so they, they both of those sides uh, could quite easily just fall off a cliff into turmoil. More so United because the problem is it's not only just the managerial situation there. There's a and they're rotten from top to bottom. You know they've got no they've got no proper recruitment plan in place. The the players they were trying to buy in the summer, the likes of Longstaff and willing to pay an X amount for them it's just. It was really a bizarre situation. So they could be in trouble for a while, and yeah, I think that's our chance to strike. But we've got we've got to improve on that waveform. form. I think that is the biggest issue right now for Everton. If they could just pick up ten or fifteen more points on the on the road, that'll be huge. Come the end of the season.
0: So, do you think if we make? Uh sixth place this season it changes back to the top five <laughs> yeah
2: so no it'll probably be the top five and whoever we over overtake i think so that'll just be a yeah, i think they'll just blare out ever <laughs> I and mean, it'll just be a, it's the top seven yeah
1: wouldn't surprise me one day. like yeah.
0: like like the picture from sky sports uh right before the season started it was the top six managers and then uh steve bruce i think <laughs> it was <laughs>
2: God, is that how bad it is? The behemoth that <laughs> yeah. is Steve Bruce. The, the managerial <laughs> giant that is Steve Bruce. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciated your article and, and your statistical analysis. Yeah, how about you that? Go. Hopefully you'd be interested in, in joining us again sometime.
2: hundred uh, percent. Definitely will. Definitely.
1: All right, everyone. That's going to do it for us. Keep an eye out for our match preview later this week. And until next time, up the toffee. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.